Good evening, and welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Hopkins, and this is the remake of episode 61. We had recorded episode 61 months ago, and it got 13 or 14 uh, listeners. Uh, Several people listened to the episode all the way through, and I was just alerted a few days ago that it wasn't available any longer. So we looked into the problem and it appears that somehow the system just lost it. The episodes around it have 41, 42, 44 views, and this episode had 16. So at some point it stopped working and I apologize for that. So we'll put it back and uh, share the insight from Revelation uh, chapter 19. And we are in verses 11 and following. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We've seen a rider on a white horse before. This is the ultimate victor in battle. The white horse was a favorite of the Roman upper class. You had to be a general or or the emperor himself to get one of the fine white Arabian horses. They were status symbols. They were the symbol of royalty. And here, John sees heaven, but it's not an inaccessible heaven any longer. It's not a place to which he has to go back and forth. It is now standing open. And it calls us back to that verse where John says that he heard the voice say, See, I have placed before you an open door which no one can shut. Now heaven is standing open and there in heaven is a white horse a royal horse and his rider is called faithful and true he doesn't bring a plague he doesn't bring anything else he brings faithfulness and truthfulness this rider brings assurance and security, safety and blessing 
not a curse of any kind. With justice, he does two things. He judges and he wages war. That's an interesting statement. You would expect that one who judged would do so justly, but the world is plagued with unjust judges, right? We argue in our society all the time whether or not sentencing meets the crime or if we're even sending a guilty person to prison or are we sending an innocent person. Justice to us in this world is, is fleeting. It's hard to get a hold of. Mercurial might be the right word. Justice is hard to get because it's, it, it's always moving. It defies grabbing with your hand and holding on to. It slips away. And our most just decisions are uninformed for the most part. We, we base them on what we can see, what we can find, what we can discern, which we know is imperfect. But he, he judges with justice. The other thing he does with justice is he makes war. With justice, he judges and makes war. That's such an interesting statement. What does it mean, he makes war with justice? Is there such a thing as a just war? If you've been to college, you've probably been in a psychology or philosophy class where the concept of the just war has come up. And, and invariably, the, the conclusion is that just war really doesn't exist. No war is just. Because war takes out the actions of leadership, the actions of crazy people on the citizens of that crazy person's nation. Millions of innocent people die because a madman sends them into battle. They don't support his madness. They don't support most of what he does, but they're defending their country that just happens to have been taken over by a crazy person. Civilians die. Innocent people die. There is no such thing as a truly just war. War is never a right decision. It's always just maybe the best of the wrong decisions. It always means destruction. It always means death. There's no such thing on this earth as a just war. And yet, here, it is said of the rider on the white horse that with justice, he judges and makes war. He will only go to war to bring justice. And in the wars that he fights, there are the righteous and the demonic. So it is possible to have a just war because what he's going to take out is evil and only evil. There are no there are no innocent civilians in any war that Jesus Christ fights. There are only the righteous and the unrighteous, the demonic. He's not talking about doing war with people. He's talking about doing war with evil spiritual forces. That's what Babylon represents.
is evil spiritual influence. And when the rider on the white horse comes to do battle, it's injustice against those forces that have plagued his creation, plagued his brothers and sisters on this earth. He's come to justly annihilate those forces of evil, those powers and principalities. That's what he's come after. That's what he wipes out in the, in the Revelation description of what we call the Battle of Armageddon. That's what he wipes out in, in the entity called Babylon. He wipes out evil justly. His eyes are like blazing fire. What do we say about the eyes of blazing fire? They see everything. They refine. Fire refines. They separate good from evil. Gold from the dross. And they discern what is good and what is not. And on his head are many crowns. He is the king of kings. He is the chosen son of God. He is, in a lot of systems, the other Yahweh, the second power of even the Old Testament. He is the one who has come to rule every kingdom, every principality, not just the ones on the earth, but the ones in the, in the dark places, in the spiritual realms. He is the king of kings. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Now, this is apparently a name different than the one that John's going to reveal to you in a couple of verses. Because no one knows it but God himself. And it's meant to be that way. If we could, if we could translate all of the mysteries of God, then he wouldn't be God. If he had no mystery, if there was nothing unknown about him, he would cease to be God. We could define him. He would become something else. But he's God, and everything can't be known about him. And that's what John means by telling you he has a name that no one knows but he himself. He can't call himself by his name. He is faithful and true. He is the word of God. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Those things are all eminently descriptive of him. But that's not all he is. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. His, his identity, because identity came from your clothing, to look at someone you knew, whether they were a priest or a member of the royal household. Remember that the father of the prodigal son says, bring a robe and place on him. It's the robe of that household. It identifies that person as a member of that household. What is it 
that identifies God, that identifies Christ, the garment is a robe dipped in blood. Some translations say soaked in blood. He is dressed in a robe covered in blood. Dipped means that it's it's saturated. It's all blood. It is all scarlet, but not because the cloth was originally that color, but because the blood was shed. His royalty comes as a result of his shed blood, of his sacrifice, of his love. That's why he went to the cross. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, that he gave his only son. His his blood-soaked garment identifies him as the Savior, as the Son of God, as the one who loved us enough to give his life for us. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Now, when you get to listening through the Gospel of John, we're going to talk an awful lot about the Word of God, the Logos, the spoken Word that created everything and a, and without which nothing was created that has been created. He is the Word of God, that Word which created everything at the very beginning of creation. God said, let there be light, and God said, let there be an expanse to separate the water above from the water below. And God said, let the dry land appear. And God said, let the land teem with life. And it happens at God's word. This is the Savior. This is the Christ. This is God himself for us Trinitarians. And his name is the word of God. Wait a minute, I thought he was called faithful and true. <laughs> well, he is. He is faithful and true because the word of God is faithful and true. The armies of heaven were following him. You notice that the tense of these verbs constantly changes. At one moment, it's present tense, and then it's past tense, and then it's future tense, and then it's present tense again. Because to John, standing in heaven and witnessing these things, there is no time. Heaven is removed from time. And so the tense doesn't matter. And in fact, he probably sees it in some random order or what seems like random order to a person bound by time. He is dressed in a robe. The armies of heaven were following him, used to be, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen. The army of heaven is white and pure. It's righteous. Those who follow Christ are righteous and part of his army. Coming out of his mouth is, present tense, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword that double-edged sword that scripture speaks about. His word is a double-edged sword that can divide bone from marrow. It can cut 
in the most fine way to bring division between truth and untruth, between evil and righteousness. And it is with that sword of his word that he strikes down the nations because he's only going to strike down justly the evil spiritual influences that dragged the nations astray, you see. He will rule them. This is a quote. You see the quotation marks. This is a quote from scripture. He will rule them with an iron scepter. <clears throat> that doesn't mean he'll beat them with the iron scepter. That means that his, his established rule is rock solid, ironclad. He will rule them in safety, in security, in justice, in truth, in righteousness. His rule will be solid and supreme. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. He measures out the fury of God, the fury of his wrath. He measures out who gets fury and who gets to ride in white linen. He makes those decisions. Jesus says to the Pharisees, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me to judge. It's exactly what he's talking about. John says it this way in the book of Revelation. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. He measures out who gets judgment and who gets grace. And those who get judgment are the finally impenitent, the truly evil, the truly active, rebellious, spiritually evil who would stand against God, they will get the full fury of the wrath of God. And he makes that decision because he does that war with justice on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written. And it is the highest name of all, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is no king higher. There is no Lord greater. There is no redemption anywhere else. There is no truth anywhere else. There is no righteousness anywhere else. There is no grace anywhere else. There is no holiness anywhere else. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I want you to imagine what it must be like for John to be having this vision. He first saw Jesus among the lampstands, looking like an old, old man, white hair and long beard, as John had become a very old man. And he sees his best friend as this aged man, the person of God, standing among the lampstands, within reach of his churches, within earshot of his churches. He stands among them for their protection and their strength. But now he sees Christ on the white horse, a warrior, 
with youthful vigor, blazing eyes of fire. But John recognizes him. He is the word of God. He is the faithful and the true. He is the one whose robe is dipped in blood, whose, whose kingship was paid for by his own sacrifice. It's John's best friend. It is his best friend on that horse. Can you imagine what it must be like for John to be pulled into heaven for this vision and to see that it is Christ who is over it all and to know that's my best friend. Sixty years earlier, he watched him die. And now he sees him riding the victor's horse in heaven. And he knows him. He knows him. He hasn't just believed about him. He knows him. He hasn't just heard the stories or been called to believe particular things. He knows him. It's Jesus, his friend, his master, his teacher, his rabbi. It's the Christ he knows. I guess if he didn't know him, he might well be terrified. But he's not. Because that's his friend who's winning the battle for everyone. John doesn't bring his personal perspectives into the book of Revelation very much. He really tries to simply relay his experience and his visions. But when I stop here and I imagine how John must feel to understand finally and, and absolutely with no question that his friend, Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I can't imagine. It overwhelms me just to think about it, how it must have felt to John. It's the vindication. It's the ratification of everything he's ever taught and ever thought and ever known. It's the assurance that for a lifetime he has been on exactly the right path and that anyone who ever follows him in that faith is going down the right path. King of kings and Lord of lords. Everything you've ever believed about him is true. The faith that you've held in him is true. Stay the course. Because in the final just battle against evil, he is the victor. <laughs>